You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. From time to time, a client may need or want to add or remove a reversionary beneficiary from an existing account-based pension. And in this case, it may be worth checking whether the fund will allow that reversionary beneficiary to be added or removed without the need to stop and restart the pension, as this can have a range of Centrelink advantages, as well as make it simpler from an administration and advice perspective. However, there are a number of strategic issues that need to be considered before doing this. I'm Craig Day, Head of the First Tech Team, and here to discuss this issue, I have two of my senior technical services managers. Kim, hello. Hi, Craig. How are you? Good. Happy to be in the same room? Yeah, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It is a bit weird seeing Mm. each other. Mm. Um, And Linda. Hey, Craig. How are you? Good. Okay, so let's get going. Linda. I'm going to start with you, lucky first. Lucky me. Lucky you. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, um, some funds will allow a reversionary beneficiary to be added or removed from an existing account-based pension. Do all funds allow this? Yeah, such a good question, Craig. It does depend on the specific fund you're dealing with and the fund's governing rules. Nothing in the law uh, prevented from happening. Um, but if you're dealing with a big fund, some funds allowed it to happen. Some funds will um, uh, require the pension to stop and restart to allow reversionary beneficiary to be added. So you do need to check with a fund. Now, if you're dealing with so many super funds, it's even more complicated. So it's if the fund trustee, uh, the fund's governing rules, allow a pension to auto-revert or the deed allow reversionary beneficiary to be added or removed without recommencing the pension. That's fine. However, you have to be really careful the deed may not allow it or if the deed says one thing and the reversionary nomination says something different, it can be really complicated. If you're dealing with situations like this, please make sure to seek legal advice. Yeah, okay, so what you're essentially saying here is it depends, um, not all funds do it. If you're dealing with a large APRA regulated fund, ask the question. Um, if you've got a self-managed super fund, it's really going to depend on the fund's documents, trustees, pension, terms and conditions, all that sort of stuff, and get some legal advice. Is Precisely, right? Craig, yes. Yeah, yeah, so really important there. So while some, what I hear is, while some funds will allow you to do it, other funds won't. Right, so assuming that we do have a fund that allows us to do this, why would I want to do this, Kim? Good question. Well, it might be because you've got an account-based pension that doesn't currently have um, any kind of nomination, so it doesn't have a binding nomination, doesn't have a reversionary nomination, and you want to add more certainty as to where those monies are going to go in the event of death. Um, Another reason is Centrelink, and that's something we're going to talk about a lot. Mm. Um, If they have one of those grandfathered account-based pensions that, you know, started before 1 January 2015, then adding a reversionary beneficiary actually allows that grandfathering to continue when it reverts to the reversionary beneficiary. So that's, that's an important point. 
Uh, similarly with Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card people, they might have an account-based pension that's grandfathered mm -hmm. um, and adding a reversionary beneficiary allows that grandfathering to continue. And finally, maybe they've started a new relationship. Maybe mm. there's, they've got a new partner and they want that partner to be the reversionary beneficiary. So in that case, they may want to add a new reversionary beneficiary to an existing account-based pension. So love has blossomed late in life. That's right. A new spouse, they want to nominate that person. Yeah. Um, what about clients just simply, you know, we talked about their removing and adding someone else, but mm. I would imagine there would also be their people just wanting to remove the person. That's right, yeah. So, um, you know, you might want to remove a reversionary beneficiary if, um, unfortunately, that person's actually passed away. Um, so the, the primary beneficiary is still alive, but the reversionary has passed away, so you might want to remove them as a beneficiary. Also, if there's been a breakdown in the relationship, so you've, mm -hmm. you've separated, you've divorced, you no longer want your account-based pension to go to that person, you might want to remove them as a reversionary beneficiary. Um, there can be also be other reasons like, you know, your estate planning wishes have changed. So you want um, that account-based pension to go to a specific person rather than, you know, forming part of your, um, your estate if it, if it was previously your LPR that was nominated or, an, or another person. So, it, you know, it can be changed in line with your estate planning wishes. And finally, Centrelink again, um, you might want to remove a reversionary beneficiary because it could actually increase your deductible amount which mm -hmm. we will talk about more in a minute. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, you know, life isn't predictable. Things change. Yes. And so having a fund that will allow us to add or remove or simply just remove a reversionary beneficiary without the need to stop and restart the pension can mm. actually be quite flexible and provide some advantages. That's now, right. you mentioned before grandfathered account-based pensions, you know. So from a Centrelink pers perspective, are we just those grandfathered account-based pensions we need to worry about? Yeah, that's right. So, um, as you know, uh, from the 1st of January 2015, Centrelink changed the rules and they said all new account-based pensions that are commenced from that date onwards are deemed. And so just the account balance is deemed. And so it's a very simple assessment. We don't need to care. We don't worry about reversionary or non-reversionary. It doesn't change the mm -hmm. way those account-based pensions are assessed for Centrelink. But when we're looking at the old grandfathered account-based pensions, which have that old assessment um, of annual payment minus deductible amount under the income test, then yes, we do need to worry about whether a reversionary is added or removed because it will or could change that, that Centrelink assessment. All right, so obviously give us a little bit of a reminder or a refresher. Mm -hmm. How are grandfathered account-based pensions assessed? Because we need to understand what we're potentially giving yes. up here or maintaining or... Give us a rundown. All right. Well, the, the short answer is um, grandfathered account-based pensions, you know, they were commenced before 1 January 2015 and the person's been continuously in receipt of a Centrelink payment um, since that time. And if it's grandfathered, it has that old income assessment, which is the annual payment minus the deductible amount. And that can be good or bad to have a grandfathered account-based pension if you're comparing it to the new assessment. If the annual payment um, is below or close to the deductible amount, it can be great because it results in hardly any or no income being assessable. Whereas if the annual payment exceeds the deductible amount, yes, there will be some assessable income and, um, and that may be more uh, than deeming or it might be less. It needs to be compared to decide whether the grandfathered account-based pension is good or bad. Um, so, so that's the, the assessment of a grandfathered account-based pension. It's that annual payment minus deductible amount assessment. Okay. so. 
Compare that with if we stopped and restarted their account-based pension to remove a reversionary beneficiary, you know, maybe we're a member of a fund that doesn't allow it, or you didn't actually think to ask the question whether you could do it and just automatically assume that you need to stop and restart. So if that happened, what happens to the grandfather? It ceases. So mm -hmm. if you stop a uh, grandfathered account-based pension and you restart it after the 1st of January 2015, it's no longer grandfathered. It's, it will become a deemed account-based pension and you'll lose that grandfathered treatment. Okay, so assuming there the client wants to retain grandfathering, um, obviously the ability to change the reversionary beneficiary without restarting the pension preserves that grandfathered status? I think yeah. that's what you kind of intimated before? That's right, yeah. So if you can not stop and restart it, if you can just keep that same existing grandfathered account-based pension and, and just add or, or remove a reversionary beneficiary, from a Centrelink perspective, they say it's still grandfathered because it still started before 1st of January 2015 and you're still in receipt of income support payments, so it keeps that grandfathered status. Well, okay, well, thinking about that though, that there's obviously deductible amount issues there. So if I'm changing over my reversionary beneficiary, what impact is that going to have from a Centrelink perspective? Do I get to keep the old deductible amount or do I have to change it over? And if I'm changing over, do I have to go all the way back to, how mm. does that work? Good question. Well, let's first think about adding a reversionary beneficiary, okay? okay. So if we add a reversionary beneficiary, um, what they do is they, they look at the deductible amount calculation and they say, we are going to look at the life expectancy of the client and the reversionary beneficiary at the commencement of the income stream. Even if that was you know, 10 years ago, they'll look at their life expectancy then. And if the reversionary beneficiary that you're adding has the longer life expectancy, they will recalculate the deductible amount and will actually reduce the deductible amount because mm -hmm. they're doing that. Okay. Now, they do look at the original purchase price and the original life expectancies and recalculate that deductible amount, but they only apply the new deductible amount from the moment that you've added that reversion beneficiary onwards. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember back in 1 January 2015, when these rules were changing and mm. there was a lot of people looking at their arrangements and reconfiguring things one of the strategies was potentially thinking about adding a reversionary but for many people they actually didn't want to do that because if they're adding a reversionary that's got a longer life expectancy mm. obviously that means what you're telling me is the deductible amount is going to reduce so they've potentially got more accessible income if they're on the income test that potentially impacts their age pension in time so mm. what a lot of tech teams talk to people about is actually don't add the reversionary now, mm. maybe wait yeah. <laughs> until the client's looking a bit sickly, <laughs> which yeah. is quite a high risk, or yeah. just wait for you know five or 10 years yeah. until the client is older and then think about adding that reversionary, which is kind of, kind of about now. now. Isn't it? yeah. yeah, it's about seven years ago that these, these rules came in. So yeah, it is... Um, it's been a while since these rules came in in 2015. And yeah, if, if that is the strategy to add them at a later date, maybe now's a time to be thinking about whether that's we add it. Because it is difficult to know, isn't it, when someone's going to pass away. Yeah. So just going back, I just want to confirm. So what you said is if we are adding on a reversionary beneficiary, what we do is we go and look at the life expectancy of that reversionary beneficiary when the pension was first commenced, not now. Yes. Okay. Um, and we're dividing by the purchase price back then. So yeah, purchase price, purchase price sorry, minus divide. any commutations yep. divided by the new 
life expectancy. The new life expectancy, mm -hmm. but we're not applying that different deductible amount right from the beginning, which would, I suppose, no. almost cause, yeah, <laughs> clawback provisions and That's all sorts right. of stuff like that. So Centrelink is telling us that, no, no, we'll just change it from the time you actually change your reversionary beneficiary. Right. So your deductible amount could decrease going forward. Yep. And if it does, it doesn't impact your previous pension entitlements. That's right. Exactly right. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, now, what if the reversion beneficiary did not have a longer life expectancy? Well, then it doesn't change anything. So, you know, it's the longer life expectancy that's used in the deductible calculation. So if, if it's the client, the primary beneficiary who has the longer life expectancy, that's how it was always calculated using their life expectancy. And so adding the reversion beneficiary won't cause it to, to be recalculated. So you don't have that problem of the, redu the reducing deductible amount. Okay, so just you change it over and it doesn't change anything. Okay, so we've just talked about adding reversionary beneficiary. But what if I'm just removing a reversionary beneficiary? What happens to the deductible amount then? Yeah, so in that case, um, the, reversion, the deductible amount is only going to be based on the client or the primary beneficiary's life expectancy. The, the reversionary beneficiary's life expectancy will not be part of the calculation. So if it was originally they had the longer life expectancy and their life expectancy was used, Removing them is going to cause that deductible amount to be recalculated and it will actually increase because the, you know, the primary beneficiary was the one with the lower life expectancy. So that could be a positive result for the yeah. person. They get a bigger deductible amount and less income. Less accessible income, potentially more age pension. Woohoo! Yes. Um, okay, so that covers the income, income test and um, age pension. What about clients, uh, maybe self-funded retirees like my parents that receive the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card and woe betide anyone that comes between them and their what they think of as their gold card. Um, does changing the reversionary beneficiary impact a client in that circumstance? Well, it can. Um, as you know, the Commonwealth Seniors Income Test is based on the client's adjusted taxable income, but also they add in the deemed income from account-based pensions. And um, when they brought this in on the 1st of January 2015, they also brought in some grandfathering provisions. And they said, if you have an account-based pension already and you're already getting the Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card, we won't deem your account-based pensions. Now, if you stop and restart that account-based pension to add a reversion beneficiary or remove one, um, that's a new account-based pension and that will no longer be grandfathered and that will be deemed under that Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card income test. So yeah, stopping and restarting will change the assessment, um, but if you're just adding to an existing one and you don't have to stop or restart, no, it won't change the assessment. Okay. So I guess deeming rates, they're pretty low, right, at the moment. So. Whether that impacts their eligibility, I guess, will depend on their situation. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can have quite a lot of um, money in an account-based pension subject to deeming and still be eligible for the Commonwealth Seniors Healthcare Card because the deeming rates are so low. And also the government um, announced before the election that they intended to increase mm. those income thresholds mm. to like $90,000 for singles and 144000 for couples. So that's not in yet, but if the legislation does come in, it will mean they can have quite a lot of income and still be eligible for the card. Now, that the government at the time announced that, but we've been through a change of government. So did Labor match that during the Yeah, election? they did. So Labor, it was originally announced by the Liberal Party, and mm -hmm. then the Labor said, yes, we think that's a good idea, we'll do it too. So matching them step for step. Yes. Okay. All right, cool. But have we seen the 
change come through? Not as yet. No legislation okay. yet. Okay. Thanks, Kim. I think we've gone through all the Centrelink details, as fascinating as they all are. Um, all right, Linda. Yes, Craig. Okay. So if we're going to add a spouse as a reversionary yep. under these rules, I suppose we also need to compare doing that with making a binding death benefit nomination. Yep. So what's better? What should advisors be recommending? I can't say which one's better. It depends. Depends on the specific circumstances that we're dealing with, right, mm -hmm. Craig? Uh, but the very first thing came to my mind would be the transfer balance cap. So the reversionary nomination will give extra 12-month period for the credit to arise. And the credit would be the market value on the date of death. So it gives the advisor and the grieving uh, spouse 12 months uh, to deal with other issues, not having to deal with the transfer balance cap. In comparison, uh, a binding or non-lapsing nomination, uh, it doesn't provide that a 12 months luxury. So advisors and the surviving spouse do have to take action, make sure that they do not breach the transfer balance cap. Yeah, because in yeah. that situation, um, the because it's not an automatic reversion, right. yeah. the super fund is now going to have to deal with the death benefit situation. Yeah. So they're going to want to administer that to say, here's the death benefit. How do you want to take it? Lump sum income yeah. stream. And that's all going to be done generally much quicker than 12 months. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So therefore, by having a reversionary beneficiary, you're giving yourself or well, buying yourself a little bit more time. However, interestingly, with self-managed super funds, not always the case, right? Because you're dealing with the spouse that's the trustee, they're grieving, mm. the, the fund might have complex circumstances. So actually, you know, a transfer balance credit might actually arise yeah. longer than 12 months actually but, out yeah. if it takes them that long to deal with, if it's not a reversionary, mm. right? I get what you're saying. So yeah. if it's reversionary, it comes in earlier. Mm. But if it's, an, it's a binding death benefit nomination, for example, it may take longer than 12 months to deal with it, right? So yeah. it does depend on the circumstances. Yeah. Um, I remember when transfer balance cap rules first came in and I was going around, you know, talking to advisors about how this all works. A common question I got was, does this mean we should always set up pensions now as reversionary? And for me, the answer is no, right? Um, because you're going to have lots of, you know, a death benefit nomination um, or any sort of death benefit nomination, whether it's via reversionary, it's an estate planning issue, yep. right? So yes, transfer balance caps is a consideration, but other considerations. So I might sit there and think, well, what if I'm dealing with a situation where a person might want multiple beneficiaries? Obviously, a reversionary beneficiary in that situation is not going to work because I can only nominate one. Is yep. that right? That's right. You can only allow one person to be nominated as a reversionary to so, the whole entire balance. Yep. So yep. in that situation, I've got to use a binding death benefit nomination. Yep. That provides more um, flexibility, yep. I'm sure. Yep. Also, they're thinking about that. What, what if I've got a client that's worried about mental incapacity and mm. they're in a fund mm, mm. that doesn't have non-lapsing death benefit mm. nominations, they have the lapsing that it requires to be refreshed every three years, yeah, right, yeah. Craig? So that's, that's going to be a problem down the track, yeah. right? So mm. obviously in, in that situation, reversionary could be good. It could be good. You don't have to worry about it ever again once nominated. But with the binding one that's not that's lapsing, you do. what if the client doesn't have the mental capacity to refresh it every three years? That's a very critical point to consider. Okay. Now, just finishing off... Mm. Having a thought here, what what happens if the person that I've nominated as a reversionary beneficiary is either 
divorced or predeceased at the time of the member's death. What happens then? So the nomination is invalid. Um, when that happens, uh, that's a trigger event to review the client situation, right, Craig? Mm -hmm. So hopefully a replacement, a replaced um, uh, nomination has right. been put together. We've already thought about this and we've <laughs> yeah. used those rules, right? Yeah. But what if uh, it didn't happen? Yeah. And we're living with a situation where no valid nomination was put in place. It all comes down to the fund governing rules. I know we talked about it a lot, but it's so important to check with uh, what the fund governing rules say. So the trustee would have a discretion. They might pay the death benefit of the deceased member to other deceased dependents, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, the, under the fund governing rules, everything will have to go to the deceased state. Yeah, so it really depends on what that fund does in that circumstance. It's yeah. very much like binding death benefit nominations. Yes. So what happens if the binding death benefit nomination fails because <laughs> The member at the time of death or the person nominated is, is not a spouse, is not uh, an eligible dependent, yeah. or they're predeceased. What happens in that situation? Same thing. It depends upon the fund and what that fund's rules are and how they deal with that nomination in that circumstance. So what you're essentially saying is it's kind of the same thing as a, a binding death benefit nomination that fails for some mm -hmm. reason. Yeah. Reversionary nomination, if that fails, it will depend on the fund's rules about what's going to happen there and what options the different beneficiaries have. Absolutely, Craig. All right. I think that about wraps it up. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventist Investments Limited accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.